All righty, turn to Luke chapter number 5. Luke chapter number 5, and we'll be talking about Matthew tonight. Um, I was excited to talk about Matthew because I love the book of Matthew. And then I realized Matthew wrote a whole gospel and almost never talked about himself. And so my favorite gospel has very little to say about uh, the person who wrote it. But we'll look at Luke chapter number 5 and what Luke wrote about Matthew's conversion. And uh, we'll study that out tonight. I don't know about you, but if there's anything we've learned so far, it's been this. Jesus chose very ordinary and, praise God, very unrefined people. I'm thankful for that uh, because when I look at myself in the mirror, um, don't say amen to this. Um, I see someone who's very ordinary and at times very unrefined. Jesus chose James and John, guys who had a bent toward anger and revenge. He chose an impulsive, strong-willed guy named Simon. He chose a logical Everything must make sense on paper, guy named Mike Collins. I mean, Philip. I know some of you were looking at me when he started talking about Philip. He chose a behind the scenes Andrew. And all those guys, honestly, would have been kind of shocking. I mean, it, when the Savior of the world touched down on earth, people weren't expecting him to choose a bunch of fishermen. But as shocking as it would have been to choose some fishermen, to choose the people I mentioned because their personality quirks, there probably was no disciple selection more shocking than that of choosing a publican named Matthew. There's not much written about Matthew. Uh, in fact, really the only thing written about Matthew in all the Gospels is his conversion story that we'll study tonight. But what we, when we look at this story... It'll just amaze you what we can learn, not just about Matthew, but more importantly about Jesus, when we look at his call to follow Jesus. But before we look at, at Luke chapter number five, and we look at three truths that I want to share with you, I think it's really important that before we jump into the world of the Bible, that I think we all revisit what a publican is. That was Matthew's occupation. That was his job. He was a publican. He was a tax collector. And I don't know about you, but when I grew up in church, a lot of times I heard the preacher say, a publican would have been like the ancient equivalent of the IRS, right? You've probably heard that. As I studied it out, that's absolutely far from the truth. If you understand how the culture viewed publicans and how the culture views the IRS. I mean, no one in here likes the IRS, right? I mean, they extend the tax deadline one month, you still hate them, you know? Um, but, but let's be honest. If someone in our church had a job with the IRS, we'd probably make a few jokes about it, but it's an honorable job. It wouldn't affect their standing with their family. We'd all crack a few jokes, but well, let's be honest, they get paid well and they have good benefits. That wasn't the case with publicans. See, when you chose to be a publican, you didn't choose to be a publican just because you were a guy who liked numbers, like what we imagine Philip to be. When you chose to be a publican, there really was just one reason why. You really like money. In fact, as I'll, I'll share with you in a minute, the people who chose to be a publican loved money so much that they would pursue the financial gain of being a publican 
to the exclusion of having a relationship with their family, access to the temple, and therefore a relationship with God. Now to understand what a publican did, you got to understand that the taxes in their day worked a little bit different than ours. Right? You didn't pay taxes once a year really like we do. Uh, of course, we pay sales tax when we're at the register. We don't even think about it. But most of their taxes were run that way. That it was, it, they had a, these tax booths. That's where these guys like Matthew would sit at. So I want you to imagine, let's just picture in our mind, a young family from Fellowship Baptist Church is on their way to Garden City for a wonderful day of shopping and visiting the Collins family. And you're headed out on Highway 83. Now, if I was Matthew and I was trying to set up a tax booth on Highway 83, it'd be right after you pass Old Chicago. That way you catch both the traffic before people pull in the liberal. And, and it would have been a lot like a toll booth. And who in here hates toll booths? They're the scourge of society. I pay federal taxes and state taxes. Don't make me pay a toll. That's not the sermon. <laughs> I would have set up a toll booth. This is what Matthew would have done. You roll up in your red minivan. And Matthew would have taken a look and he said, oh, you got a two-axle vehicle. I'll charge you tax for that. He'd say, um, how many children do you have? And depending on which family we're talking about, they'd be like, are there more? You know, you got any more back there, right? And he's counting how many children, and he taxes you based on how many children you have. This isn't sounding much different than the U.S. government, I guess. <laughs> he taxes you on how many children you have. And then he say, oh, I see some packages. You're sending out some mail, right? Yeah, I'm going to go and drop off something at the UPS store up there. Okay, I'm going to charge you tax on that. And since you're driving, uh, it's 11 a.m. There's a lot of traffic problems at 11 a.m. So I'm going to charge you a late morning traffic tax. And so the way that it worked, they just charge arbitrary taxes. There was no set rate. And you didn't really know how much you're going to have to pay in taxes. You'd pass by Matthew on Highway 83 one month to go shop in Garden City. But when your wife wanted to go to Target the next week, he would charge you a totally different amount. It was totally arbitrary. And so no one liked publicans because no one likes paying taxes. But, but it's even worse than that because if you were a Jew in that society, there was an added layer of hatred because publicans represented everything that Jews hated about Rome. Now, if you study the Old Testament with us as a church, the promise of God to his people, we just talked about it actually, that God promised his people a land. He promised them the land of Israel. But in the time of the New Testament, that land was not Israel's land. It was occupied by Rome. Well, the Jews didn't really like that because they understood, hey, this is the land that God gave us. And so Rome, and therefore, uh, not Republicans, Republicans, well, you know, publicans represented everything that Jews hated about Rome. They represented the freedom that Rome took away from them. I shouldn't have to pay a tax on my minivan trip out of Jerusalem. I shouldn't have to pay you money for land that God promised to me. And so here are these publicans, they're absolutely hated by society, but it's worse than that. When you chose to be a publican, you are automatically disowned by your family. Meaning that, I want you to picture this. If you chose to be a publican and you would walk by your mom or dad in the marketplace, let's say you just happen to run into them. 
there are probably two ways that person would react to you. This is the person who birthed you. They would either not make eye contact with you, or more likely, they would spit at you. Then on top of that, get this, publicans were so hated by Jews that publicans weren't even allowed to access the temple courts that Gentiles were. Now you understand anything about biblical times, Jews didn't like Gentiles. They were kind of racist people at times. But they hated publicans so much more, even if they were Jewish by ethnicity, they said, we don't want you anywhere near our temple. And so here's what happens. If you chose to be a publican, you distance yourself from your family, but you are saying, I'm totally okay with never having access to the temple, which probably said something about your view of God. Because visiting and worshiping at the temple was so central to the Jewish faith. If someone was willing to forsake that, it automatically meant, well, they obviously don't care a whole lot about God. So are you getting the idea that being a publican was a little bit more unpopular than being an employee at the IRS? It was an, it really, it would have been, if you were a publican, you were considered a social outcast. In fact, I think the verse will be on the screen. That in their day, I want you to notice what this verse is implying. That socially, they equated publicans with prostitutes. So you understand socially what it means for someone to become a prostitute. You'd say, I could be as poor as possible, but I would never do that to make money. That's exactly how people viewed being a publican. Look at what Matthew said. For John came, funny, he's a publican writing this. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him. He's saying the lowest of the low believed in him, and when he talks about harlots, the very person he pairs with that is a publican. Does that give you an idea? The type of social standing that Matthew had. Matthew was not a white-collar person. Matthew was considered a thug. He was considered a God-hater. He was the scourge of society. He was hated by everyone who passed by him. No one could have possibly thought that Jesus would choose a publican. But here's what amazes me. Is that when all of culture would have run away from Matthew, when all of culture would have thought, Get me as far away from a publican. Let me travel a different road. Let me not even look in the face of a publican. And if I happen to pass by him by the street, I'm going to spit in his direction. That while all of the culture viewed Matthew that way, that's not how Jesus viewed him. And if you want to learn what God wants us to learn from Luke chapter number 5 and from the life of Matthew, let me give you this first truth. I want you to write this down. Here's what we learned from the story of Matthew, that Jesus sought after social outcasts and sinners, and so should you. Jesus was willing to seek after a social outcast and a sinner, and so should you. Culturally speaking, Matthew was hated by his parents. He was hated by his countrymen. He was hated by the kids he grew up with and he went to temple with. But while all those people hated Matthew, Jesus loved Matthew. When everyone else was repulsed by Matthew, Jesus sought after him. I want you to look at verse number. I want you to look at verse 23 because I think it's interesting, Pastor Tyler, what this, this story follows after. If you'll remember uh, the story, this is actually what Pastor Tyler preached on Easter of when, or maybe it was Open House Sunday, 
when Jesus healed the man with palsy, he was paralyzed. And you know, his friends lowered him through the roof, that story. I want you to notice that the whole point of that story, look at what Jesus is demonstrating in verse number 23. He, he heals the man, or sorry, he says the man's sins are forgiven him. And the scribes say, who are you to say this guy's sins are forgiven him? And Jesus says, okay, look at verse 23. Whether it's easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say rise up and walk. And so he says, I'm going to demonstrate a very powerful truth to you, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. He saith unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise, take up thy couch, and go to thine house. And Jesus says, you want to know if I have power to forgive sins? That's fine, man. Get out of your bed, walk, carry your couch, and go to your house. And if I can heal you, Pharisees, I have power to forgive sins. And so Jesus just demonstrates powerfully, hey, I have power to forgive sins because I am God manifest in the flesh. And here's what I find interesting. Right after Jesus declares his power to forgive sins, what does he do? He walks by a sinner. Name Matthew. Look at verse number 27. And after these things, pay attention to that. After these things, he went forth and he saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. You know how Jesus demonstrated his power to forgive sins? You know how Jesus demonstrated his willingness to forgive sins was not just healing that man who was paralyzed from birth, but he walked by the booth of a tax collector, the guy everybody hated. And when everybody else wanted to run away, Jesus sought after him and forgave him. And said, so you know how I'm going to choose to be on my team? I'm going to choose the guy no one else likes. The publican named Matthew. As I was reading this, I thought, why, why would Jesus see something in Matthew no one else saw? Why did Jesus go to Matthew and call him to follow him when no one else would have ever thought of that? And here's what came to my mind. I want you to pay attention. It's on the screen. Because when Jesus saw Matthew, he didn't see Matthew's sin. He saw his soul. He saw Matthew's soul. You know, when Jesus looked at, at Matthew, he didn't see a guy who traded money for his family and for his worship at the temple. When Jesus saw Matthew, he didn't see Matthew's background. He wasn't intimidated by Matthew's baggage. He didn't think, oh, you know what? He's probably too far gone. I mean, just look at him. Because that's what other people would have said. You know what Jesus saw? He saw a sin-sick soul. The same soul that he saw in Peter. The same soul that he saw in Quiet Andrew, who you never see doing anything wrong in the Gospels. The same soul that he saw in other disciples. He saw the same thing in Matthew, and that's why Jesus went after him. Because he saw in Matthew the same problem that underlies you and underlies me. We are souls that need a Savior. And I couldn't help but wonder, church. I couldn't help but wonder... When I walk by the publicans in our society, what do I see? Do I see a sinner or do I see a soul? When I walk by the modern day publicans, the thugs, the people who on the outside look like they've rejected Christ, they've rejected family, they've rejected God, they've rejected the laws of our country. When I look at them, do I see them like Jesus sees them or do I see them like the rest of the culture sees them? I couldn't help. I want you to look at verse 30. 
Because this is the same account talking about Matthew and, and, and Luke calls him Levi and his friends as they're dining with Jesus. I want you to see what Jesus said about his associations with these people. Look at verse number 31. He says, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Church, I wonder if there's some people in here that if you took an honest look at your life, if you took an honest look at your evangelism, if you were just honest with yourself, that you might be like me and you might say, I probably gravitate to the people who look whole. And not the people who are sick. But when Jesus came to earth, It doesn't take a lot of reading the Gospels to understand Jesus didn't gravitate towards the people who are polished and cleaned up and just need a little bit of Christ. He was was gravitating toward the people that everyone else saw as too messed up to help. But Jesus looked at them, and he didn't see them like you and I see them. Jesus saw their soul. And he said, I can help them. What does a publican in 2021 look like? It looks like the woman you run across who obviously has a past and hard life with drugs. It's the guy that you see at Walmart who looks like he has a gang background. It's the sexually loose person that's at your work. It's the person whose political opinions are very different from you, and you, you would naturally have no associations with them. And my question is tonight, church, when you find those people, how do you see them? Do you see them like Jesus sees them? Or do you see them like the culture conditions you to see them? When Jesus saw Matthew, he saw way deeper than other people saw. He saw a man who had a soul that needed Jesus and how you see somebody pay attention to this how you see some how you see somebody determines how you seek after them if you don't see them as a soul that needs to be valued by God I could promise you this you're not seeking after those people you're walking right by them and you're missing gospel opportunities because you've never stopped and thought you know maybe that's a person God wants me to reach because Jesus sought after social outcasts in sinners And so should you. But I want you to look at verse number 28 with me. Or sorry, verse number 27. Jesus came to Matthew, came to Levi. He said to him, follow me. Now look at verse 28. And he left all. He left it all. And he rose up and he followed him. Here's the second thing we learned from Matthew's story. I love this one. It's that Jesus redeems social outcasts and sinners for his purposes and his glory. It, listen, Jesus wasn't in the business of just finding somebody who's materialistic and saying, hello, materialistic person, come follow me and just stay materialistic and greedy. No, Jesus was in the business of changing Matthew. And so when Matthew joined Jesus's band of followers, I guarantee you he was unrefined. We don't hear a lot of stories about it, but I'm sure Matthew probably, if you're just going to judge by what's on the paper, he's probably a pretty selfish guy. He probably didn't care anything about what anybody else thought. 
But you know what Jesus did? Jesus said, come under my wing and I'm going to change you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to make you a different person. And when Matthew's on the other side of Jesus's ministry, he's not the same Matthew that found Jesus at a, at a booth for collecting taxes. No, 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 my friend. He was redeemed and he was used for God's purposes and God's glory. Amen. The same guy, pay attention to this, the same guy who was... Uh, not allowed to be in the temple, he was excluded from temple worship, is also the gospel writer that happens to quote the Old Testament the most. He quotes the Old Testament 99 times. 99 times. What that says to me is either something changed in his life that he may not have had any association with the temple, but something changed where he was deeply in love with the scriptures and understood how Jesus was not just this man who could perform miracles, but Matthew was the guy that could point back to multiple points in the Old Testament and say, Jesus is a fulfillment of this prophecy and a fulfillment of this prophecy and a fulfillment of this prophecy. What does that say? That means God changed him. A guy who had no association with worship of God is the same guy who is so thoroughly ingrained in the scriptures. That was Matthew. History and tradition says that Matthew followed Jesus and he went on to proclaim the gospel to Jews and and Gentiles alike in Israel and abroad for many, many years before he was martyred. And most of the Stories out there say that Matthew gave his life for Christ being burned at the stake. I want you to think about this. This is a guy who left his family and left his God for money. And at the end of his life, he left everything in this world and let his body be burned alive because he loved his God so much. That, my friend, is a story of how God redeems social outcasts and sinners for his purposes and his glory. And I've been around church people enough to know that we all come to church and we put on our game face and we try to act proper. But I I look around the auditorium tonight and there are people in here who are a lot like me that if you get down deep into the core of who you are, sometimes you wonder, God, can you use me? God, can you use me because I still doubt my salvation? God, can you use me because I have a background of sin? God, can you use me because I don't know a lot about the Bible? I'm not very well educated. God, can you use me because I'm like Peter. I just keep messing up and saying dumb things. God, could you use me? Can you change me? Can you do something with me? My friend, God can. God can take the worst of the worst and he can change them and and totally mold them into something new. And you find a man that wrote the first book of the New Testament and he was the same guy that everyone looked at and said, there's no way God could use him. And I just wonder if Jesus chose Matthew as a tangible reminder of his disciples, hey, listen, I'm in the business of saving everybody. I'm in the business of using everybody. And if I can use Matthew, I can use you too. Hey, listen, friend, sometimes we might think the doubts of ourselves and God's ability to use us are some sort of sign of humility. Well, oh, I'm just, I'm just such a bad sinner. and I've, I'm just acknowledging my weaknesses. No, no, no. I, I want to I I encourage you to think about it differently because when you doubt like that, you are not just doubting your ability, you're doubting God's ability. God has proven himself powerful enough 
to take anybody and to do anything with anybody. And if God can redeem a publican and make him an Old Testament quoting machine gospel author, my friend, God can use you. God can make you a Sunday school teacher. I, I think that God's got the resume to prove he could do that. God can make you a gospel witnessing machine. God can do anything with you if you just trust him and follow him like Matthew, one step at a time, Amen. one step at a time, Amen. one step at a time, and God will change you. He'll change you little bit by little bit by little bit, but God will make you a completely different person. But my favorite part, this is my favorite part. Matthew, he follows Jesus. And I'm just trying to picture how this worked out. You know, he gets up, follows Jesus, and then look at verse number 29. And then it says, Matthew made him a great feast in his house. He's like, Jesus, I'll follow you, but I want to have you over for dinner. Can we turn back around and, and go to my house? And I want you to look at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast, pay attention to these next four words, in his own house. And there was a great company. And who sat down with Levi and Jesus? A great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. Now look at the response of the Pharisees. I don't, I don't know if they're creeping through the window, but apparently they were somewhere nearby. But there's, verse 30, But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Here's what we learned from Matthew, is that Matthew refused to keep Jesus to himself. Matthew refused to keep Jesus to himself. And just like we saw with Philip and with Andrew, and basically every other disciple's conversion in the Gospels, Matthew's first impulse after following Jesus was to invite somebody to meet him. I don't know about you, but we should probably be catching on to a theme here. When you meet Jesus... Introduce him to somebody else. Every disciple seemed to have it figured out, and the woman at the well, and the guy, all the guys who got healed in the Bible, we probably should figure it out too. And, and so here's this theme that everyone who meets Jesus introduces uh, their friends to the Savior. And so here's Matthew, he's excited. He's like, I'm gonna throw a party, I'm gonna throw a banquet, I'm gonna invite everybody and I know. Well, he didn't know a lot of the riffraff, you know, the Upper class of society. You know why? Because no one, no one liked Matthew. He's the guy who stole their money. But you know who he invited? The people he knew. The other scoundrels of society. And so he invited the other publicans and apparently other sinners. So I'm, I'm assuming, like we saw in Matthew, probably some prostitutes. I mean, it wasn't a group of people that you would want to see your pastor eating dinner with probably. You know what I mean? It would have been a, kind of a weird social setting. But here's the Savior of the world, the Holy God, sitting at dinner with prostitutes, publicans, the lowest of society. And Matthew said, I can't keep Jesus to myself. You know what struck me is that Matthew didn't introduce Jesus to people he, couldn't, he didn't have access to. Apparently, he didn't feel obligated to go tell the Roman centurion about it. You know, because there's probably some Roman guard, standing guard there to say, hey, you got to give this guy your money or I'm going to have to arrest you. and It'll be kind of awkward. He's like, I'm not going to introduce you to him. He probably doesn't like me. I'm going to introduce Jesus to my circle of influence. 
Pay attention to that. I'm going to introduce Jesus to my circle of influence. I was thinking about this even our last Sunday in our, in our connection groups as we were discussing the idea of the kingdom of God growing with human initiative. And I thought, man, it could be so intimidating to us, can it? Sharing the gospel. And we, you know, we think immediately of you know, divine encounters and God crossing our paths with someone random and sharing the gospel with them. But as I look more and more at the gospels, I really think that while there's times that God expects us to do that, I think we are most highly accountable for sharing the gospel with people within our circle of influence. And I really want you to take a moment, and I want you to think for a moment tonight, what is your circle of influence? Because you are responsible. Oh, church, get this. You are responsible for spreading the gospel within your circle of influence. So I gave you some ideas. Who's my circle of influence? What's my coworkers? You know, I don't think I'm primarily the one responsible for reaching the people at Black Hills Energy. They have their own man, their own Zacchaeus. His name is Rick Potts. And believe it or not, believe it or not, he is more capable of reaching them than I am. I mean, if I came into, I mean, they'd be like, who are you? You know, get out of here. But if Rick Potts stands and says, I'm going to share the gospel with you, Hey, listen, he's got credibility. He's worked there. He's living out the gospel. That, those are his people. They see him day in and day out. He's lived out the gospel. Those are people he can influence. I think of uh, uh, people in our church who own businesses. And, and, and just that rises to the top. And I know we, we talk about it here and there. But I think of Brother Gary Dunham and, and, and Miss Candy who use their business and the circle of influence that they have there so well for sharing the gospel. I have a lot of respect for them for doing that. I know probably some of you do that and we don't know all, all that goes on there. But, but I just have a lot of respect for people who say, you know what, God has put me at this job not just to make a living, but to make an impact. Amen. And I'm going to use my ability to, to interact with people to share the gospel with them. And you know what, there'd be a lot of reasons for Candy or Gary to say, you know what, I probably shouldn't share the gospel with this person. I mean, Gary probably has to evict people on occasion. You know what I mean? That's what comes with being a landlord. You're chasing people down for money. you got to get paid, all that. But you know what, Brother Gary, what I appreciate about that, he, he's never let that hinder him from sharing the gospel with people. I mean, in, upstairs tonight, we have someone that Brother Gary led to Christ. His name is Colin Martin. Okay, only three of you are excited about that. Wow. Maybe I need to pick from your list of converts, Candy. I don't know. Maybe they'll get more excited about that. I, I just think that, oh, man, I, if some of you would, would really grasp this. Yes. Man, we've got financial advisors in our church that are literally talking to people about what they'll do with their money when they die. You have a perfect opportunity to tell people about Christ. Amen. That's exactly how Candy does it. Sell you a life insurance policy, but I got something better for you. I got heaven insurance. His name is Jesus. And, and listen, I just want to challenge you. God has put you in a place to work because that is your circle of influence. And, and heaven forbid that we, we, we find excuses that, well, my work policy is this. I find sometimes that the Christians who bring that up, their, their attitude is not, let me find a way to, to navigate that properly and still share the gospel. It's like, well, I got these policies, so I can't do anything. No, 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 no. You have an opportunity to influence people for Jesus Christ. 
If you think hard enough about it and you let God lead you, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's outside of the workplace, God can help you have an influence. People you regularly interact with. Now, I don't know where that would be, but people you regularly interact with. Your family. Your family. Who in your family doesn't know Jesus? You know, God, God's put you there to reach them. Your friends. People you associate with because of your hobbies. Your neighbors. Some of you are thinking, man, I, I got a publican for a neighbor. Let me tell you, I, I get it. I get it. But God put you there for a reason. And he didn't put you there just to complain that they don't bag their grass when they mow. Although that's annoying. <laughs> but, to, but to say, you know, I'm going to do something to reach them with the gospel. And what I love about Matthew is a guy who could have fully said, I have no credibility. I mean, I literally steal money from people. That's what I'm known for. The moment he met Jesus, he said, I just can't keep him to myself. And I just wonder how many of us, maybe that would be a way to describe our relationship with Christ. We keep him to ourselves, And we look at our circle, and there's been very little effort, if we're just honest, there's been very little effort to share Christ with that circle. Now, I know that that could be intimidating. So here's the, what I challenge my class. This has helped me. Because I know sometimes it feels like when you hear a message like this, it's like, do nothing about sharing the gospel, and now go tell everyone about Jesus and that they're going to hell. They need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ today. It seems like a very big leap. Right? And here's, here's how God's helped me with this. And, and I know this may sound weird for a preacher to say this. I'm not, I'm not telling you to go share the gospel tomorrow. I want to challenge you to do something smaller. Start small. Right? When we talk about our Bible reading habits, start small. Same thing with soul winning. Start small. Pray for that person. I told my class this. Pray for one person on your heart this week. Pray for them. You know why we pray for people? We pray for them because as we pray for them, it helps us to see them as God sees them. That's what I found. Man, prayers help me to just see people like God sees them. But then, then here's the next step. Live out the gospel around them. If you're not living out the gospel, you should probably get on that. Because it's not going to work very well when you try and share the gospel. You're not living out the gospel. But here's the third thing. This is, this is help. Love them just a little bit extra. Just a little bit extra. Give them a gift. Take them out to lunch. Ask how you can pray for them. You know, I, I, I told my connection group, man, I, I don't know how, but I just, I think if you do those things and, and you're sensitive to the Lord, opportunities will open up. I'll just share my testimony of this. Hopefully this will encourage you. You know, we, we had to write the name, write a name of someone that we were burdened for. You remember that in your connection group? Um, the, the name of the person I wrote down, I just happened to interact with her. She's the, the director of the chamber in Garden City the next day. And uh, we were sitting down there and we are talking about some things. And she knows that we're going up there to start a church. And I, I kid you not, we just prayed for her the day before. And we have done what we could to live out the gospel and love her just a little bit extra. And I got to talk with her for 20 minutes about church and God 
in the Bible. And listen, church, that, that just happened. Why? Because if you pray, if you live out the gospel, you love people. Listen, God will give you opportunities to reach your circle of influence. He'll give you opportunities. And I just, I, I hope that, that there would be someone God's put on your heart. Someone that you need to reach. Because when I think about the story of Matthew, if I could encapsulate it in one idea, it's that Matthew's conversion, it, it almost, to me, it pictures the heart of Christ. Here's Jesus, and he saw a guy that no one else saw. He loved a man no one else loved. He sought after him, and he redeemed him. And then as Matthew receives the love of Christ, what does Matthew do? He turns around and he shares the love of Christ. And I think if there's anything God wants you to learn from Matthew, it's that he wants your heart to grow like Christ's heart is. He wants you to love sinners like Christ loves them. He wants you to see sinners like Christ sees them. And he wants you to pursue your circle of influence like Matthew did. So would you do that tonight? Maybe tonight your response is this, God, would you, would you work in the life of this person who's in my circle of influence? God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with them. God, help me to love them. Help me to pray for them. Or maybe for some of you, it's God, help me to see that you can do something and redeem me and use me like you used Matthew. And no doubt, I think for a lot of us, it's our response to the message is this, God, help me to see people like you see them. Because sometimes I walk by and I see their sin, I see their exterior, but I don't see their soul. I don't see them like you see them. Let's pray. I, I hope you'll respond to the message tonight.